Good morning. Let's go to the Lord once more. Lord, we come to you this morning one more time to ask that you would guide us as we look at your word. Guide us as we seek to know you. Guide us as we seek to be like you. We pray, Father, that you would be honored in this time, that you would use your spirit to empower us as we do not have the strength to accomplish this on our own. We do not have the strength to worship you as we should. We are not capable, Lord, but you are more than capable. So we ask that you would give us all that we need so that we as your people could be dependent on you to learn to know you, to honor you and follow you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. A moment on the lips, 25 years on the hips. That is what my grandpa always told me. He wasn't a big man. He certainly didn't have lots of pounds to lose, but that has stuck with me for no reason other than it rhymes really nicely, I guess. But we all know that we have food available to us, and food nourishes us. Food gives us what we need to make it through our day, to make it through our activities, to sustain us and keep us going. And food also can cause us to store some of that needed energy just below the skin level as fat, right? So eating food has a result. That result is that we have energy, nourishment. We have the ability to do what God has called us to do. And it also has a secondary result at times in food's case, but a secondary result of stored energy as fat. Why does that matter? We're not here to talk about healthy eating patterns. We're not here to talk about exercising. We are here to talk about Christ. So so how does that example build us into this passage of Scripture? Mostly because it builds us out of the passage before it. So we're going to read Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, but we have to remember where this comes from because he starts with the word therefore, tying us back to, from this passage, back to the passage he just was writing on, which is grace, Romans 2, or Romans 2, Galatians, Galatians. Oh, take a deep breath, Brock. We are in Ephesians. We have been for a while. I've been reading it all morning. Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, in verse 8. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, right? Our salvation is given to us by grace. And as we looked at last week, verse 10 follows the result of getting that grace is... For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he gave us grace to save us and have a result in doing good works. Now, mind you, again, that is a result of the grace that we get. 
It is not the precursor to the grace that we get. It doesn't come alongside the grace that we get. It is a result of the grace that we get. But that grace has a second result. And again, this is where, where headings and chapter numbers and verse numbers can throw us off. Because we were not intended to divorce verses 11 to 22 from verses 8 to 10. So as grace results in good works for the individual and collectively as a principle, but it results in something else, a secondary result for the body, for the family of Christ. So the primary result is that good works. The secondary result goes like this. Therefore, Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The immediate result of grace is that we are saved and that we, because we are saved, work out the good works that God has for us to do. The secondary result is that we are joined together with the Jews. But in order for us to be joined together with something, we must what? Be joined together ourselves, right? As we read this passage, there is a lot of divisions. There's a lot of hostility. He refers to peace, reconciliation, to breaking down the dividing walls of hostility or the dividing walls that are a partition between us. There was lots of problems. If you think that our culture is new to the sort of turmoil that cultures face, you're wrong. Here, and it didn't start here, but here you've got Jews who were physically conquered by the Romans, who were kept in line by the Romans, by guys walking around with swords, not to keep the peace, not to keep the law, but to keep you in your place. 
that breeds contention, distrust, hatred, divisions. And now God has taken this group of Jews who he had set as his people and given his statutes to in the Old Testament scriptures. And he's now added to them all of these other people whose faith are in Christ, but all of these other people who they otherwise hated. Because they were ruthless to them. So they not only had racial distinctions and divisions, they not only had social, socio-political distinctions and divisions, they had actual physical conquering nation mindset divisions and distinctions. And that's the people God made one. And if he can do that there, I promise he can do that with any of the issues that we have in our culture. Again, not the point of the message. The point of the message is actually the unity that we have in Christ. Not the unity that becomes then an extension out there with other people that we may or may not know yet. But we as one family here at Bethel, we have unity in Christ. How so? You're different than me. Which is a good thing. The world could only handle so many of Brock. And I believe the number is one. At least that's what my friends always tell me. We're not the same. So how is there unity? In what way is there unity? If there truly is unity, not this sort of superimposed, let's just pretend like there's nothing different between us sort of unity. You know that phrase that, that was used a lot in culture? Oh, I don't, I don't see color in people. Do you know how stupid that is? We do. I see lots of different colors amongst you. When my kids are here and they're much darker, we use the term black, though they're not really black and we're not really white. We're sort of peachy and brown. We're in that spectrum, right? When I look at them, I do see different colors. I should. God made them that way. On purpose. And it's wonderful. Right? So how is our unity? They're different than me. They're different than you. How is our unity amongst us? When we have different thoughts, different likes, different passions, how is their unity? As a culture... As a Western culture, we have a tendency to, to look at things through the idea of a microscope. And we say, let's look at this on the most, the most small detailed level that we can and see if they're the same. It's like checking fingerprints. And we say, is there unity? Well, there is if the fingerprints are the same. But that's not really accurate. When the scripture talks about unity... Paul, as an author, the Holy Spirit as a guide and an inspirer, is not looking at us in terms of a microscope. He doesn't say, here are the things and activities that you should like if you are going to be unified. You should like golf and basketball and hate running. See, if, if I were to write this, that's what I would write. You like golf, you like basketball, you like wakeboarding horses. There's all sorts of things you can like. Running, not on the list. 
Why doesn't he look at it that way? Because when the scripture looks at unity, it doesn't look at it like this. It steps back and takes a look at us as a whole. What is the most fundamental things about you? The fundamental things about us are, as followers of Christ, is Christ. And when Christ is the condition upon which our unity is based, then we find that we, as a body and a family, can be united in him. Why? Because I was a sinner who was only saved by grace, who had nothing to do with it. And needs Jesus yet today. Each one of you were sinners saved by grace. You had nothing to do with it and you need him yet today. When that's the most important things we look at, we say, yeah, there's unity. We all started in the same place. We all had the same spiritual path to get to where we are. And we all still need Jesus. Yet, is that the criteria that we frequently impose? Or, or do we impose different criterion to find out if we are unified? Do we like the same things? Do we, do we think that, that you can or can't do certain activities? I mean, we're Baptists, so we obviously don't play cards, right? Sometimes those are the things that we use to make us distinct. And we say, you've got to agree with me on that, or we can't be unified. Now, friends, there are things that the Scripture makes clear we must agree on. And they start with, Salvation by grace through Christ. And they end with how he tells us we should live explicitly and specifically. And we actually see that later. We see a, a, a hint as to what that should look like for us because our culture has taken this and said, oh, so that none of the extra stuff matters, at least aspects of our culture has. And we say we're unified in Christ. So all of the other stuff that isn't Jesus' salvation doesn't matter. That is not what we are taught. In fact, even here, if we sort of skip down to the end of this section, we see that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets in verse 20. So God makes us fellow citizens together, members together, built on what? The teaching of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And we don't really use cornerstones. At least I'm not enough into building to know. So if you're a builder and we do use cornerstones in the same way they do, please tell me afterwards. But I don't think that we do. We have cornerstones that we stamp on them. This is the cornerstone of the building. But it's no different than any other stone. It's just a stone. Not even a stone. Usually a block that we made. A cornerstone here was the only thing that kept their building square. So they would have one super expensive, hand-chiseled, square stone. And they would put it in the corner. And the squareness of the building was built from that stone. So they'd, they'd run a string out, if you'd say that, 
straight from one corner of this along the stone and they'd say, that's our line going right and left. And then they'd do another one going front and back and they'd make a, a corner that was perfect. That was a cornerstone. I mean, it was the most important one that you placed, the specifically most important one. And that's Christ in this case. That stone, which is the corner, that one upon which everything else is built and then the apostles and the prophets are the rest of that foundation which is none of us. And then we are built upon that structure, meaning we can't just jettison the things that came before us and say, oh, those are old and outdated. We don't like those anymore. Yet at times, there are things I look at at people in the past and I think, you're wrong. Your understanding of this is wrong. So how do we figure that out? This is relevant to us. The younger you are, the more relevant it is. How do you figure out if the ideas that came before you are valid and right, or if you should change some of those to, I don't want to call them new, but, but a, a newer version of your beliefs? How do you know? It's actually relatively simple. We see this, this will be true in the conversations about morality, ethics, how we should function in society. That's usually where these revolve. So you could think homosexuality, but not just homosexuality when you think sexual morality. Because the Bible makes, it does distinguish between homosexual and heterosexual immorality, and it condemns them both to the same level, at the same time. So we can't say homosexuality is really, really bad and heterosexuality is just bad. Or heterosexual immorality is bad. All sexual immorality is evil. Okay? So when we look at it, our culture says, oh, but we don't want to say that. So... So since we don't want to say that, how can, we, how can we find scriptures to not get us there? And we do all of this work to figure out how to justify, reconcile, change, or relook at all these different passages in scripture to find out how we can end up with the perspective we've already stated we want to end up with. That is the wrong way to go about it. If, on the other hand, you look at a passage of Scripture and as you study it, it drives you to a different perspective than what you've had before, not because you're trying to find a different perspective, but that is the natural, necessary result of what you're reading, then change your perspective to better align with the Scriptures. I've not found many of those arguments for how we should jettison morality in our culture that says the scripture's okay with this. In fact, I can't think of any. But there are theological things that I've changed my perspective on because I understand the scripture as I study it and it drives my end point. I've, I've had to change. But we can't just throw out the old and say, oh, our new is better. 
were built on the apostles and prophets. That's where our unity doesn't rest and rely, yet is found. It's found in not just getting rid of everything in the past. It's found on building on that which we already have, not jettisoning it. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. And remember, that was a legitimate distinction. It's not relevant to discuss in depth what circumcision is, but what it meant was these are the men of the families that are set apart by God to be his people. That was the Jews. The Gentiles were the uncircumcision, the ones who weren't in that camp. There was a distinction. And then what happened? That happened. And that is the changing point in all of it. And that, again, becomes the center point for our unity. Not because other things don't matter. They are important as extensions of the cross. But Christ in the cross paid for our reconciliation. Who's? The Gentiles and the Jews. Again, we're back to this one place, one system. We were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth, strangers to the covenants. We had no hope and we were without God in the world. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But now, in Christ, we were dead, right? We had all of that. But now in Christ we're unified. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, made us alive together with Christ. And, and that's where we find ourselves. The beginning point of our unity is that. And it should be enough for us. It should be enough so that when your brother or your sister across the aisle or across the room or across town does something that you don't like, you know what things we usually deal pretty well with with people? Not always. But usually we do deal pretty well when somebody else sins and we deal with it. Do you know what we do really bad with? When somebody does something that we don't like. They do something in a way that we wouldn't have done it. And by golly, that comes right out. Let's put that right there. Remind me not to do that again. <laughs> but we're mad. Why? Because Brock is breaking stuff in the front of the room. Because somebody did something that we just don't like. It's not even that they sinned against us. It's that they did it in a way that we didn't like and we didn't want. I have that same problem. I find myself more offended by people's doing things that I don't like than by people's sin. Do you see how backwards that is? Now, sometimes their sin is also things that I don't like because they did it to me. And now I'm doubly unhappy, I guess. 
But I find myself, and, and as I talk with people, I find most people more unhappy about things they don't like than about sins around them. If we're unified, if we are to be unified in the cross, then when somebody does something that we don't like, we should be able to say, boy, I didn't like that. Now let's move on. That's easy to say, easy to agree to in this moment. It's hard to do. But Christ, who both made us alive, now brought us near to him and gave us peace. For he himself is our peace. This is verse 14. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Remember hearing all those words? We talked about the, the animosity that was there between these groups of people. We continue to hear it. It's just all through this text. There was a dividing wall of hostility. He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And that is important to understand right. When Paul writes that Jesus abolished the law, it does not mean that he said, here's the law and it is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. There's one famous preacher speaker at a church, I should actually say, leader of a church who is a speaker at a church whose comment is, we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament because Jesus abolished it. That is not what this passage means. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 says that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And if you don't know what an iota is, you probably have an idea, but it's actually part of the lettering of Hebrew. And it's the little dot thingy that they put up in there above the Hebrew letters. None of that will pass away, he says, until all is accomplished. And when was it accomplished? When he died on the cross and fulfilled the law. So he didn't abolish it in the sense that he said, oh, let's get rid of this, it doesn't matter. He abolished it for us in the sense that he said, I have completed it, you don't have to. So it's abolished as far as our salvation goes because he fulfilled the law. So now our salvation comes by trusting him in grace, not by accomplishing something on his behalf. He didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled it. But for us, it's abolished in the sense that we don't need to fulfill it. He has now reconciled us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, peace to those who are near, peace to those who are already near to understanding the methods of God who had and held the Old Testament, peace to those who were far off, who were worship, worshiping hundreds of gods at a time. He offered peace to all of them, not that he gave it to all of them. 
You have peace when reconciled by the cross, he says. So now we, our fellow citizens, we are members of one body, members together. So when we speak of this unity, it ends up being and is intended to be not just unity in our salvation, but unity in our life. It's called praxis. It sounds like practice, and it's very much like practice. But we are to be unified and together in our actions and in our going forward. Why? Because we are members of one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes it this way, verses 18 to 20. But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So the point of this passage begins with saying, you can't say because I'm not in this special prominent position that I don't matter or God doesn't care or, or I'm not needed. God put the different members in this body together as he chose for if all were, sing all were a single member, where would the body be as it is written? There are many parts, yet one body. You have a different set of gifts than I do. I have a different set of gifts than the other elders do. Each one of them has a unique set of gifts to each other. And we put those together to form one body of people trying to accomplish one purpose, unified together in where we're going. Which means we have to know where we're going. We have to care about where we're going. Somebody has to lead us in where we're going, and that leading is the elders. Their job is to give that perspective so that everybody knows where we're going as we follow the elders to achieve the goal that he's put before us. For we're members of one body, but not only members of one body, we are fellow citizens. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 6. For as it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, precious and chosen. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And I only read that because you need to know it's there. And we'll explain it some other time. But you, right? Distinctions. Believers to not believers. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is that unifying condition where citizens together, having received mercy, having been given grace, having been made from a nothing people into God's people. So we function as though we were our God's people together. Set aside, Paul says, silly arguments, debates about nothingness. How do you decide what are the silly arguments or the debates about nothingness? 
It really comes down to intent. I can have discussions with people who, who want to just dive deeply into theological distinctions. And they might be smarter than me. They might know more than me. But I love getting into those conversations and saying, okay, let's break this down into little bitty pieces and see what upon what we are building. And sometimes I can have that conversation with Chris. It would be great. But there's other times people come up to you and they ask a question just to start a fight. It could be the same topic that I would be talking about with Chris. I won't have that conversation with them. Because they're not there, or if I'm not there, to reach a conclusion. They're there to have an argument. Those aren't beneficial to this body of people. We discuss things and move forward with things so as to grow together. Not so as to divide ourselves over things. Because we're unified there, which means we are on the same team. We're fellow citizens. We're members of one body. We are people who have been taken from dispersion and brought to purpose together. It's like, it's like if all of the, the sand in an hourglass, you just took it and smashed it on the floor. And it spreads all over the place. It accomplishes nothing in trying to determine the time, right? It's all just scattered. But if you take all those pieces and you put them back in the hourglass and you let them fall through that little narrow gap, which I'm sure there's a name for, then all of a sudden it holds purpose again. Those pieces hold purpose together to accomplish what they were intended for, which is telling time. And if we take ourselves and shatter us across the floor because we don't like that Brock isn't wearing a tie this week. Or we don't like the way we displayed pictures on the bulletin board or non-bulletin board in the hallway. Or we don't like the color of the screens on the TVs. Or we don't like the fact that the chairs are now no longer in a straight line across the room. They're angled as you go to the edges. These are things that not people have brought up to me here, but that have been brought up to me at places. These are the things upon which we create distinctions and divisions. We don't like how that was done. And if we find ourselves not liking how something happened, and, and make distinctions and divisions amongst ourselves through that, and we miss the fact that we're supposed to be accomplishing the same purpose in sharing the gospel, in making disciples as the rest of us around here. And if we go on in 2 Peter chapter 2, he not only says that we are all this chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, he also says that we are sojourners in this world, meaning we are passers through who don't belong we don't belong to the world, to the North American continent, to the United States of America, to, I almost said Algona, to Marquette or Michigan. We belong to Christ. And that's where our unity is found, right? It's not that we don't care about those other things. God has put us here in this place, in this town, in this country, in this world to accomplish his purpose here in this time. But our purpose is his purpose. And if we make other distinctions, we are in error. 
If there's things you don't like and you want to tell somebody about it, tell me because you won't hurt my feelings. And it may or may not be changed. But we're to be unified in Christ. Nothing less and there's certainly nothing more. Because his blood on his cross paid our debt and made us alive in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love for us, for all that you've given to us. We pray, Father, that you would be honored and glorified in the decisions that we make, in the lives that we lead, in the love that we have, in the unity that we share, in the purpose that you've given to us. We ask, Father, that you would strengthen each of us where we're weak, use each one of us to strengthen those around us where we are strong. To your glory, to your honor, and because we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.